Good evening. Welcome tonight and uh, welcome to our time in uh, God's word. As the slide said, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 14 because we are uh, going to be back in there and we have a lot of ground to cover tonight. And I want to begin by very quickly looking back on some of the ground that we've already walked. And uh, our series in 1 Corinthians brings us now to chapter 14 and really the epicenter of everything that was dysfunctional in the church at Corinth. Uh, their, in particular, their obsessive uh, selfishness and their lack of love uh, towards one another was manifested in all kinds of categories of the church, which we've spent many months studying now. Uh, but now we come to really what was at the core of so much of the, of the problem, and it has to do with uh, unity, love, and spiritual gifts. So chapter 12, we've studied this already, chapter 12 is about how, it's about spiritual gifts and that every spiritual gift is vitally important, much like in your body. Every part of your body is an important part of your body. You'd hate to pick a part of your body that you wouldn't live with, that you wouldn't have anymore. Now, some of you are like, I'd like it to look different than it does, <laughs> but we want all the body parts. Um, chapter 13, I won't say that tomorrow, chapter 13 was uh, about the priority of love, and that love is more important than any spiritual gift. And now we've come to chapter 14, and what he does here now is he really he kind of sharpens his pencil and he sharpens his critique uh, regarding the importance of edifying and building up one another. Now we saw last week that there were two spiritual gifts that were uh, particularly a problem speaking in tongues, and the gift of prophecy. And uh, we define speaking in tongues as the ability to speak in a language not your own. And then we define prophecy as the ability to speak God's truth and to apply it uh, to life or the situation that is, it's, it's speaking to. Now, we saw in verses 1 through 12 that Paul is... His point is that prophecy is more beneficial than speaking in tongues in the church because nobody knows what somebody is saying when they're speaking in a tongue. But when prophecy is spoken, everybody understands it and thereby can benefit from it. So uh, the benefit he gives in verse 3 is being upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And what we see throughout this entire chapter is the priority is on that which builds up the church. Spiritual gifts are for the building up of the church. That's their whole purpose. So whatever is going to be best at doing that, that ought to have the priority. His summary is verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now in today's passage, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to explain why churches should prioritize understandable speech that builds up the church and to restrain from unintelligible speech that nobody knows what you're saying. The big reason we see again in verse 12 is the building up of the church. So in verses 13 through 25, what he does here is he applies that priority to these two particular or to two particular groups. One is fellow Christians and the other is Unbelievers who may have gathered in the assembly of the church. Okay, now we're only going to deal with the first today, uh, 
We'll save the, the, the second for next week. But next week we're going to see that Paul's strong objection to uninterpreted tongues in gatherings is for one particular reason, is that non-Christians will come and think that you are uh, totally crazy. So don't do that in the gathering of the church. More on that next week. Now, let's pick it up. For the sake of fellow believers, he, he begins now in verse 13, and I'll just read verses 13 through 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I also will pray, or I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, what is plain here, I hope, just even in that cursory reading, is the priority is on whatever builds up the church. That's the big deal. That's what Paul is aiming at. He applies this now to the Corinthian practice of speaking in tongues. Now, whether you think speaking in tongues at at, at the time of Corinth was a known language or an unknown language, it doesn't really matter in how you interpret the passage because in both cases, nobody else there knows what you're saying. And that's what Paul's point is. If nobody understands what's being said, what is the point? Why are you doing this? How has anyone benefited from it? So let me just walk through now. What is he saying? And what he says in verse 14, basically, he is dissecting the experience of speaking in a tongue. And he says it this way, that the spirit of the speaker prays, but the mind of the speaker doesn't understand. That's verse 14. Now, let's define our terms here a little bit. The spirit, what is that referring to? And here, I think the ESV study Bible helpfully defines it as the inner invisible faculty that can be especially tuned to the things of God, the inward self, the inward soul spirit. The mind then is that intellectual part of our brain that, or our makeup, our personhood that understands things. And I hope that part of your faculty is working right now. How many of you is it working? How many of you not so much? I joked last week that this is one of these chapters of teaching where um, if, if, if you, you just sort of walk in, you might be calculating how many steps it is to the door. Um, but it is, it is interesting and it is God's word. And so we're going to tackle it. And that's the kind of church that you go to, by the way, is a church that tackles the hard issues. I hope that you like that. Sometimes I would prefer not, but actually we're going to do our best today. Now, in some ways here, spirit and mind broadly define uh, two kinds of Christians and two kinds of churches, or at least the priority that churches and Christians sometimes will place. There are some Christians who put emphasis on the, the inner spirit and their faith expression is very much oriented towards what is going to move them inwardly. And so 
their worship services are uh, 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 emotional, priority on emotional, priority on experience, priority on uh, the sensational. On the other end of the spectrum, so if you can view this as a spectrum, on the one end you have the sort of spirit-focused churches, inward spirit, not Holy Spirit, inward spirit. On the other end you have uh, churches that are, are much more mind churches. And so uh, they, pri- they prioritize doctrinal clarity and reasoning and precision in what we believe. So in the foyer of a, it's, some, it's fairly easy to know what kind of church you're in by just walking into the place. Because you walk into a mind church, mind-focused church, and you're going to find for sale in the, in the foyer uh, uh, books and commentaries and, and uh, uh, brochures on classes of apologetics and opportunities to learn about your faith. Spirit kind of churches, though, are a little bit different. In a spirit foyer church, you will find praise and worship CDs and classes on spiritual warfare and banners to be waved enthusiastically in worship should you so choose. So uh, in case you're visiting, you may have picked up on a few things as you walked into our church and maybe how we orient ourselves. So mind churches like to think Spirit churches like to feel. Paul's response here is that both are critical. That the Christian faith is not just a mind faith. We're not just intellectual eggheads who understand God. We think about God. But we have absolutely no affections and no feelings and no emotions whatsoever. Nor are we simply uh, goosebumps here, completely irrational, without any tether to God's revelation in Scripture. In fact, you might even think about Jesus in in John 4, the woman at the well, when he said there's coming a day when uh, those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. He didn't just say spirit. He didn't just say truth. He said in spirit and in truth. That Christianity is both an experience of the mind and the thought and the thinking and the reasoning as we seek to love God with our mind and also an experience of the heart where we seek to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That it is both of these together. And that's what his response here is. He says in verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And I think that that is a very important statement because in, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there is all kinds of rhetoric that goes back and forth between these kinds of churches as they throw stones at one another. You know, uh, the, the, the old analogy, uh, I think I've used it before. You know, we got the spirit. Yes, we do. We got the spirit. How about you? And they're on the other side. No, we got the spirit. How about you? We got the most. We got the most. We got the most. Did you do that growing up? Okay. I figured in, in uh, Hoosier basketball land, a little pep rally analogy would connect. So um, there is, on the kind of the extremes of this spectrum, there is a lot of rhetoric that goes back and forth. Paul's statement here, I think, is very helpful. When praying, even in a tongue, he says, there is much more that is needed than simply for my spirit to engage in some kind of religious expression. Remember, spiritual gifts are for the building up of the church, 
That's why God gave them to us. So Paul exhorts then the Corinthians to pray for the power to interpret, to engage their mind in what they are feeling, which I take to mean that then out of their mouth comes words that are understandable to the other people that are around them and not just sort of a a meaningless language of some kind. And that is his point as well in verse 16. He says, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen, which basically means yes. Let's practice that together. And the Bible word is okay. Good. How can, how can anybody affirm what you are saying if they don't know what you're saying? And verse 617 repeats his concern. You may be giving thanks, but the other person isn't built up. There's that primary focus of the whole chapter. So since building up others is the priority, seek to pray and to sing with your mind so that you understand what you're saying and thereby others can as well. Now, verses 18 and 19, both of these speak to the mind Christian who might make light of the spirit and the spirit Christian who might make light of the mind. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, this is a very important statement, and again, another one that I think would help to balance the froth. That's a completely mixed metaphor. <laughs> to, to balance the froth. Some of you are like, why don't you apply what you're saying and speak in words that we can understand? <laughs> to minimize the froth and to balance the rhetoric. How's that? (laughs) It's better. I need my mind to engage in what I'm saying. So here's a balancing statement. Paul says this, you Corinthians who think you're so godly and so spiritually mature because you speak in tongues, I just want you to know I trump your experience because I have spoken in more tongues than any of you. So I'm I'm not a novice at this. It's not like I don't know what I'm talking about. It's not like you're the PhDs in speaking in tongues and I'm in kindergarten. I'm the PhD. You're the one in elementary school. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to speaking in tongues, he says. However, when it comes to the life of faith in the community, when it comes to the body, when it comes to the experience of the church, he says that he would rather speak five words one, two, three, four, five, just five, then 10,000 words in an unknown language. So he says here, the problem is not that you speak in tongues. It is the priority that you are placing on it. You want to make it this big thing that measures how godly you are and you minimize love. We saw that in chapter 13. He says, listen, the main thing is love that seeks to edify and to build up the church And the tongues is way down the list. So much so that he kind of gives a a fun ratio here. He says five to 10,000 and 10,000 was the biggest 
number in the Greek numerology, numerology, I think so you technically say that, but um, it's the biggest one. So that'd be like us saying, I'd, you know, I'd rather speak five words that people would understand than 10 bazillion gazillion, you know, pick your biggest word number that we have. And the point isn't that you actually count out how many words and now I can say another one in a tongue. It's kind of a, it's a sense of hyperbole here where he is wanting to say this, the five is way more important than the 10,000. So he doesn't dismiss tongues, but he puts uninterpreted tongues value so far down the list as to nearly slam the door on them being present at all in public worship. In fact, he's going to say in verse 28 that if what is coming out of your mouth is not understood by others, keep your mouth shut. We'll get to that hopefully next week. And you're like, oh, we can't wait to hear that. That sounds like fun. It will be. Uh, Now, this is, in my judgment, probably as good a place as any to address uh, the question If the value judgment that the Apostle Paul was placing on, you know, this five to ten billion gazillion, is speaking in tongues valid at all? Which I think is really kind of the horns of the issue and really is the battleground that the whole charismatic, non-charismatic, back and forth, unbalanced froth. (laughs) That's where that all takes place. So, um... Because what happens here is Paul lays down such a strict use of tongues as to make them nearly invisible or absent from the life of the church. However, it is almost, but not quite. So what has happened in the debate on this is that the mind kind of churches, if you can imagine maybe a door, the mind kind of churches read this and they say, you know, the door is almost closed. Let's just go ahead and slam it all the way. Whereas the spirit kind of churches are on the other side of the door saying, no, and they're trying to push it as open as they can. And the mind churches are on the other side. Oh, it's going to be closed. And it kind of debate goes back and forth. And somebody writes a great book and seems to be winning this way. And then somebody else writes a book and goes back this way. And what happens then is you have, you have the, the, the folks in the, in the, in the pews who are just kind of like, we don't know what to think because we don't know who to believe. Well, you have come to the right place tonight. (laughs) that was a joke Uh, because as I said last week as we come to this we're dealing with something that great minds and scholars and pastors have debated forever and there are books upon books upon books I've read many of them there's more than I've read for sure who say all kinds of different things there's no way that we could imagine uh just you know a few weeks here just us gathering together we'll settle the issue until jesus comes it's not going to happen Uh, but i do have some things that i'd like to share and i want to kind of define the arguments a little bit okay and if you're here tonight and you already know these completely then this will be affirming to you if you've not been aware of the frothing that has gone on in this issue well then this is going to be helpful to you okay so, class, let me explain a little bit uh, uh, the arguments that are made on both sides of this issue. So, I'm going to begin, first of all, with what is known as the cessationist. 
Cessationist comes from the word cease. So a cessationist is somebody who says that uh, spiritual, the, the more spectacular gifts like speaking in tongues and others, that those ceased uh, when the time of the apostles passed. Now, two main reasons that they say this. I'm not going through puberty. I've just had post-nasal drip all week, and you can hear it in my voice. <clears throat> Ironic, speaking on a matter such as tongues. Uh, the first thing that a cessationist will point out is that there is teaching in the Bible that the purpose of these uh, what are known as sign gifts are to validate and authenticate the ministry of the apostles prior to the establishment of the canon of the New Testament. Now, there are some verses that clearly link the ministry of the apostles with spectacular signs and wonders. Here are two, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Second Corinthians twelve twelve, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so a cessationist will link spectacular kinds of evidence of spiritual gifts to the times of the apostles. And since the apostles all died, there no longer was a need to validate their ministry. And with the establishment of the scriptures, there is a self-authenticating revelation that no longer needs validation like speaking in tongues. A second reason that they will put forth is that redemptive history shows that God has always worked in miraculous ways at times of key transition in the redemptive story. So a cessationist to say, let's look at redemptive history. Let's take a big picture and look at everything that God has done. And if you do that, like if you took every miracle that was ever performed in the Bible and you put, wrote it on a sticky note and we had a timeline on up here and you said, okay, put the sticky note on the timeline where that happened, you would find that there are basically four clusters of moments or brief eras where God was actively doing uh, maybe what we would call these sort of remarkable things. Those four would be Israel and the Exodus. During the times of Elisha and Elijah, obviously the life of Jesus, and then in the book of Acts during the time of the apostles. Between these clusters, you have huge periods of time where there is little, if anything, that we would put into the remarkable category. So to this point, a cessationist will point out that speaking in tongues, obviously tied to the first point, is only mentioned in the book of, the only letter it's mentioned in is, a, is 1 Corinthians. And the rest of the letters that you read all talk more about a kind of body life in the church that is built upon preaching and teaching and the proclamation of Scripture. 
Now, what about the contemporary phenomenon in charismatic circles of what they call speaking in tongues? Now the room gets quiet. What about that? Well, some of you are like, I totally get it. I totally know what my position is on that. Let's move on. Actually, it's not quite as easy as you might think. For one, the ecstatic utterance experience is found in basically every religion of the world. It was also a part of the cult worship of the first century. There are sort of quasi-Christian groups that deny key doctrines of the church and speak in tongues. That's a little problematic, then, if you're going to say that that has got to be an evidence of the Holy Spirit. A second issue with this is whether what is commonly called speaking in tongues today is even the same thing as what was experienced in the first century. And uh, to this, we actually don't even really, we don't even know. And I'll quote now a leading charismatic scholar. He's probably number one charismatic scholar who says this on this very point. The question as to whether speaking in tongues in contemporary Pentecostal and charismatic communities is the same kind as that in the Pauline churches is moot and probably somewhat irrelevant. There is simply no way to know. Gordon Fee. So at the very least, it has to be agreed that there is a significant difference in what God was doing during the time of the apostles, at least in terms of intensity and frequency, than what happened for many, many centuries after that. Why is that? Asks the cessationist. Who cares? Asks the continuationist, which now is the other side of this spectrum. You have the cessationists who say they stopped, they're no longer valid. On the other side, you have the continuationists who basically, you can tell from the word, believe that it continues uh, on uninterrupted. So let's talk about some of the arguments that are made on this side of the spectrum. And with this, I'm actually quoting Ferguson in his summary of their um, positions. Here's the first one is simply the contemporary experience. A continuationist will say, do you realize there are tens of millions of Christians in the world who experience what they believe to be speaking in tongues and and other spectacular sort of uh, movements of God? Can tens of millions of Christians be wrong? Interesting argument. Second thing they will say is, and they'll point this out, the New Testament never says anywhere that gifts of the Spirit would be withdrawn. In fact, if you look at the end of this chapter, Paul's going to say, do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's a tough verse for the cessationist to work his way around. Uh, But it, it is definitely there. Now, of course, the cessationist would say, well, the Bible doesn't say that they won't stop either. And so then you go back and forth, the door slams open and close, and you see how this goes. But this is, this is where the arguments uh, go. Secondly, or thirdly now, the Spirit came at Pentecost, and his work continues as it did in the New Testament times. Now, the reason this argument is compelling is that the cessationists are forced to argue a kind of two stages of the age of the Spirit. If the Spirit comes at Pentecost, you have 
from a cessationist perspective, you have the apostolic age, which is marked by signs and wonders. And then you have the post-apostolic age, uh, which is less intense in those ways or to the, to the, to the extreme where these things are no longer valid. So now in, in saying that both groups are supernaturalists. Okay. Both groups are. But the continuationists don't have to kind of dance around a sort of two stages of the Spirit's work post-Pentecost. And then uh, finally, 1 Corinthians 13.8, which we studied some weeks ago, says that tongues would cease when the perfect comes. And there's debate about this, and cessationists will debate this, of course. But I think... And I agree with this, that what the perfect that comes is, is the return of Christ and the, the eschaton, the things, the last things and all of that. So they will say that uh, they would cease when the perfect comes. The perfect is when Christ returns. And so they are valid until then. So there's just a quick summary. There's a library of books you could read on this if you'd like. Um, <clears throat> What, uh, what, what can we say about this? Well, one thing I want, I want to make sure that you understand is that it's not like you have this group over here and this group over here and there ain't nobody in the middle. I mean, there are, even within the cessationist position and the continuationist position, there are all kinds of subpositions under that broad category where if you really study them, it's somewhat hard to tell the difference in some cases between the one and the other. The lines are blurry here, and things are much fuzzier than, than maybe you were told in Sunday school. Um, if you went to Sunday school, which probably means that you are a cessationist. Uh, <laughs> there are really articulate writers who defend all of these positions. And if you were to read their book, unless you were really, really good, you'd have a hard time refuting them. So... What I'm saying is this, is that this is a very challenging issue and good people disagree on it. And I think we need to embrace that reality. So let me just offer some thoughts here about it that I hope will be helpful as you come to your own conclusion as to um, what, is, what is best here. First of all, I want to say this. It's important to realize that Christianity is both mind and spirit. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to reinforce this because what oftentimes happens in this argument is that, like a lot of arguments, things get polarized. And so you, so you have an either or. You, are, you either believe that God is at work in this world or you're one of those stinking cessationists. God can't do nothing. He's just up in heaven, not, or, you know, the other side can similarly be uh, pejorative. And so things go back and forth like this. And in a very real sense, it seems to me that both sides of this spectrum desperately need each other. Let me say that again. Both sides of the spectrum desperately need each other. Now, in saying that, I also want to acknowledge that there are fringe groups on both ends of the spectrum that are just basically the lunatic extreme and have nothing valid to offer to this discussion. And, uh, and you know, you get, a, you get a fighting charismatic and a fighting fundamentalist together, there's no good dialogue that's going to happen. They're better off just, you know, <laughs> st- uh, staying apart. However, 
There are many sincere Christians on both sides of the door, if you remember my analogy, on both sides of the door, who are less interested in pushing and shoving and more interested in pleasing God and being biblical and having the door right where God wants it. And I think we need to acknowledge that. With mutual respect and responsible dialogue, both groups can benefit from one another. And I have seen this kind of loving and respectful dialogue between these two groups in an organization called, uh, their name is the Gospel Coalition, which is a group that I like very much and has been able to bring people on both sides of this and have not allowed it to be a divisive issue. I think it's a great model for everybody and for us here at Bethel Church. So the cerebral, non-emotional, thinking cessationist need a little bit of warming up. And the thrill-seeking, experience-based continuationists need a little calming down. And by bringing these two together, perhaps there would be some benefit. Because Christianity is both. And we've got to fight the tendency to kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like you're on a, on a uh, seesaw where you're either up or down, you know, we, up or down. We can't quite balance very well. God wants balance here. It is both mind and spirit. And so I say this, God keep us from a kind of faith expression that limits what God can do to the mental and theological box that we want to put him in. And God save us from faith expressions that prioritize the personal spiritual goosebump apart from loving God with my mind or loving neighbors with words that are understandable. Now, I read that because I could never quote that, but I think it's really, really good. So that's the first thing. Bethel Church, what do we want? Both mind, spirit, spirit and truth. John 4, we want the whole thing. Secondly, there is a difference between what God can do and what God normally does. There's a difference here. One weakness, I think, that the cessationist group, and maybe you grew up in this or you're from this kind of background, but what tends to happen with a group that, that slams the door on, on God's present vibrant activity in the world is that it kind of tends to produce an anti-supernatural kind of faith. Now, technically, they're not anti-supernatural, but it feels that way. And in closing the door on certain spiritual gifts, it closes the door on God still working in remarkable and even miraculous ways. They sort of throw the supernatural baby out with a theological bathwater. Another one of my favorite lines in this message, by the way. Can we say this? We believe in the supernatural. We believe in the supernatural. We believe that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He's God. Okay. So we've established that we are a supernatural church. 
Because I think that that's important. Nothing in Scripture minimizes God's ability to act in mighty and decisive ways whenever he so chooses. And I think this is where the continuationist side is very helpful because a continuationist approaches their life, approaches even a worship service with a great sense of expectation on what God might do. And I think that this is good and helpful. However, there is a difference between what God can do and what God normally does. God typically works through what we might view as being very ordinary and normal. He chooses typically to work through things that are just very much around us all the time. We pray for guidance. God orchestrates circumstances. We pray for healing, and then we go to the doctor. And God brings healing through a nurse, a doctor, a surgery, a medicine. Is that God working or not? Yes, it is. This is how God normally works. I think even of this sermon tonight. Is there anything more pedestrian and normal and even boring in our culture than to go to a church and to listen to a sermon? I mean, that's got to be, you know, that's something like, you know, choose between, in the culture, choose between a root canal and listening to a sermon, and they would probably have to pray about it, right? (laughs) Because you can turn the TV on at any time, and there's some guy yapping about something, hearing the sound of his own voice, going on and on. You can, you can watch a sermon anytime that you want. They're on the radio, these radio preachers and all the rest. So, uh, thanks. And uh, <laughs> yapping away. And yet, isn't it interesting how God works through something so very normal? Great example of this last weekend. I had a message on this same subject. And afterwards... Mike here sitting in the front row sends me an email saying, uh, last night there was a woman who first time ever attended there, prayed to receive Christ after the service. And I was like, really? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm glad. That's great. How did that happen? Because I didn't hardly talk about sin and, you know, the gospel. And yet somehow God used something very ordinary to do something very extraordinary. And that's the way he normally operates. So, when we limit God's working to merely the spectacular, we tend to see everything as a miracle. And we miss the more subtle ways that God is active in our lives. Now, personally, for example, I don't know if I have ever personally witnessed what I would call a miracle. And I talked with somebody from a charismatic background, and they've had three before breakfast. (laughs) And I'm like, really? I think we need to learn the difference between the miraculous and the supernatural. 
There is much less that is miraculous than people think, and there is much more that is supernatural than we begin to realize. Friends, listen, God is at work in this world. He is at work in your life and in my life and in ways more than we begin to realize. I think we're going to get to heaven and God's going to begin to explain all the different things that he was doing in our life. And we're going to be like, I missed that. I just thought that was like, I don't know. It just was there. And, and he's like, no, that was me. That was me. He normally works through secondary causes. This is Ephesians 1, 11, that God is working out everything according to the purpose of his will. God works typically in cooperation with natural processes that he has built into this world. This is known as the doctrine of providence and the doctrine of concurrence, where God cooperates with systems that he has built in to direct and to guide everything according to the purpose of his will. And that is as supernatural as me levitating right now and saying I'm the Messiah. That is how God works. And so we have to not be all, you know, we need something spectacular and miraculous in order for me to think that God's at work in my life. He's at work even right now, having brought you to a church assembly where you are under now some level of proclamation of God's word, which is his revelation in this place that the world laughs at and scoffs at and the cross is a stumbling block to those who do not believe, but to us it is the wisdom of God. So we need to embrace these more ordinary things as supernatural and divine I think spiritual gifts are an example of this as well. When somebody comes to you and they extend mercy to you, they help you in some way. That can seem very normal. And yet we know from 1 Corinthians 12 that that is a divinely given gift to them and that they are actually extending to you the active love of God in this world. All gifts are supernatural. All of them are. As Stott points out, all spiritual encouragement is divinely sourced. If we had greater respect for the non-sign gifts, we wouldn't be as impressed with the sign gifts. They're all important. They're all from God. They're all wonderful. All right, which leads then to the question, are the sign gifts valid for today? And what I want to do here, and I I rarely do this, but I'm going to do it here, uh, because there are better spokesman for on this matter than than i can be i want to read a couple of slightly longer quotes of trusted teachers to me about this and interestingly i'm starting with the westminster confession which you don't know what that is or you would find that ironic um this is a um the westminster confession is a very Uh, theological conservative confession that is predominant in more reform circles. It is a wonderful confession. And as part of it, it says this, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means. Okay, so we just got in talking about that. Yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. 
So even what is probably the most conservative statement of faith, one of the most in church history, acknowledges that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. We put him in no box as if we could anyway. A writer comments on this. Because of its strong commitment to the sovereignty of God and the mystery of his plan, the confession acknowledges explicitly that there may also be operations that are not attached to means in any ordinary way. The ultimate determining factor in every case is his pleasure. J.I. Packer, who's one of my favorites, writes very, I think, specifically on this. He says, charismatic glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, is the Greek word for that. A chosen way, he defines it now, a chosen way of nonverbal self-expression before God has its place in the inescapable pluriformity of Christian experience in which the varied makeup of both cultures and individuals is reflected by a wide range of devotional styles. It seems clear that as a devotional exercise, glossolalia enriches some, but that for others it is a valueless irreverence. Some have practiced it, have later testified to the spiritual unreality for them of what they were doing. Which is as a side comment, I've actually talked with people in our church who um, maybe come from continuationist kind of backgrounds and who they would affirm exactly what he has said here. Now, where was I? <laughs> While others who have begun it have recorded a vast deepening of their communion with God as a result. And there is no reason to doubt either testimony. Glossolalic, there's a fun word, prayer may help to free up and warm up some cerebral people just as structured verbal prayer may help to steady up and shape up some emotional people. Those who know that glossolalia is not God's path for them and those for whom it is a proven enrichment should not try to impose their own way on others or judge others inferior for being different or stagger if someone in their camp transfers to the other, believing that God has led him or her to do so. Those who pray with tongues and those who pray without tongues do it to the Lord. And by that, I think he's talking about sort of that balanced, respectful middle. Forget the fringe lunatics. We're talking about the sort of reasoned, balanced people. Maybe I don't need to say that, but I just felt the need. And again, where was I? Uh, <laughs> they stand or fall to their own master not to their fellow servants. In the same sense that there is, a, is in Christ neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, he's quoting Galatians here, so in Christ there is neither glossolalist or non-glossolalist. Even if, as I suspect, though cannot prove, today's glossolalists do not speak such tongues as were spoken at Corinth. None should forbid them their practice while they, for their part, should not suppose that every would-be top-class Christian needs to adopt it. John Stott, who is one of my favorites. Of course, I said that about Packer, but I'm, I'm pulling out the heavy guns for this one, man. These are my top dudes. He says this, What then should be our response to miraculous claims today? It should be neither stubborn incredulity, incredulity, Incredulity. Wes, how do you say that word? 
I've been saying glossolalias. I can't, my tongue's all messed up. Okay, that word, which he defines, but miracles don't happen today, nor in uncritical gullibility. Of course, miracles happen all the time, but rather a spirit of open-minded inquiry. I don't expect miracles as commonplace today because the special revelation they were given to authenticate is complete. But of course, God is sovereign and God is free, and there may well be a particular situations in which he is pleased to perform them. It's a wonderfully balanced statement, I think. And then finally, from J.I. Packer, I am for the Holy Spirit. So more from 1 Corinthians 14 next week. Till then, what I want to ring in your minds and your ears is verse 12. Strive to excel in building up the church. Gifts are not an end in themselves. They are a means to another end, and that other end is love that self-gives for the good and joy and building up of others. And that's the kind of church that we want to be.